0: I'm Reverend Harry Bridge And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell And this is the Dharma Realm Podcast And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California Dharmaram podcast from March 15th, 2013, and today we are talking about the tension between renunciation and family. So, one of the issues uh, in, well, I think it's an issue in, in Buddhism in general, but certainly uh, Buddhism in the West, quote-unquote, or Buddhism here in the 21st century, maybe we can say, uh, is the issue of uh, monasticism, uh, the kind of renunciant uh, uh, approach to Buddhism. This idea that uh, one wants to get away from the attachments of the householder life, right? That, that the, the life of the householder is one kind of life and that there is this um, leaving home, right? The renunciant, uh, monastic kind of vision. Uh, well, it's not necessarily monastic, actually, but um, that one uh, gets out of uh, everyday society and... And the, ent- the attachments? Yeah, and the, the, the attachments and uh, engages in spiritual practice uh, separately, whether in a monastery right. uh, or solitary out in the forest, too, is another. That's why or maybe, I said,
1: Or maybe exclusively, like engage in spiritual practice exclusively rather than,
0: mm. uh, you know, like that's what you do. Right, right, than, right, right. That's actually kind of your job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and that's where interesting stuff comes in there, where actually the life in a monastery may not be. Exclusive oh, spiritual <laughs> practice, you know that um, it could be very um, administrative or right. Um, but but I, I think that uh, certainly uh, much of uh, traditional Buddhism, uh, there are these monastics, these renunciants, uh, people who have left home uh, and uh, are devoted their entire lives uh, to the Buddha Dharma, to the practice and study of, of Buddhism, uh, and is that can that work in the 21st century? What
1: about, about the, the family? Yeah. Won't somebody think about the children? <laughs> <laughs>
0: what about the children? <laughs> yeah. No, that's actually a really good point. Um, and another way to think about it is, yeah. So, so is, and maybe another way to think is the uh, Buddhism as this kind of solo individual uh, kind of mm-hmm. pursuit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go off and meditate. I have to work on myself. Or um, can we, Uh, find spiritual attainment and uh, growth in the context of family
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, and so these are all I think really big issues for uh, probably Buddhism all over the world I would think Um, certainly Buddhism in quote unquote the West uh, and
1: different
0: different schools of Buddhism have different approaches to it I mean Jodo Shinshu is kind of built in in a way that it is family Buddhism
1: right
0: um Sometimes to the the exclusion of the solo practitioner, Um, it can be difficult for someone who's like individual and you know not part of the family to to break in. But um, that's a whole other problem. Yeah, that's a whole We don't really have to address that necessarily.
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, I I I don't know. This seems to me like something that's pretty unique to not unique, but of particular concern in contemporary America or the West. Um, And I think part of it has to do with this desire that some people have to um, sort of do monastic practice within the context of of the home life, right? Um, Hmm. People who want to do what historically have been pretty specifically monastic kind of uh, practices or rituals or whatnot. Like retreats and and meditation meditation, meditation and so on, um, you know, within the context of a family life. And that, I think, creates some... You know that's uh, something that we sort of need to wrestle with. Whereas in in hi- the historical tradition, it probably hasn't been as much of a problem because the the roles of monastic versus lay life were probably a bit more uh, concretized, uh, not quite as fluid, maybe. But I, you know, it's, this is these are gross oversimplifications of thousands of years of history um, across most of the planet so it's hard to <laughs> say something definitive um, but we did uh, want to talk about this uh, interesting uh, blog piece that we found um, uh, this was months ago now um, uh, and I can't even remember the name of the blog but we'll post it on the website so um, so that'll work uh, and it, the post has to do about um, uh, the sort of narrative of uh, Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha's life and uh, if I remember correctly the post was Sort of uh, talking about how the way we usually understand the Buddha's life is that he was the renunciate, that he you know left his uh, his his home and he left his wife and his child and he went off by himself and he did the spiritual He's quest. He's like did beat did beat Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and I think that's actually kind of a problem. That uh, it's interesting to see how people um, how people deal with that in in sort of contemporary commentary about you know the fact that the Buddha left his wife and child and what does that mean? And um, I think that. Uh, A couple of things that that came out of this post for me, this blog post for me, one was that uh, it's important to remember that the story was sort of written within a particular context for a particular audience. The story of um, this extremely wealthy prince leaving his family in order to, you know, uh, to do spiritual practice, I think, can be very inspirational for a community of monks. You know, and that's primarily, I think, who this was the first audience of this story was, you know, people who had done the same thing, probably if not, you know, uh, not, you know, staying with their families or their communities, but instead making this uh, decision, a commitment to go off and do um, uh, spiritual practice um, and, and looking to the Buddha then for inspiration for, you know, this being an acceptable kind of way to go about it. But the other part of the post that was interesting was this idea of rethinking the narrative and rethinking the myth, so to speak, of the Buddha and focusing instead on not just this the, the, the bald fact that he left his wife and child, but what that really meant and whether or not he really did actually leave his family, mm-hmm. which was interesting because the, the author of this post, um, I think, is arguing uh, that of course, the Buddha didn't actually leave his community. He was actually probably still pretty uh, embedded within his community, who actually provided him a lot of support. Um, you know, both leading up to the point where he leaves the palace, but also following that. You know, the Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, you know, was a wealthy person who had a lot of support and lots of education and lots of training, and all of this stuff helped create the person that he was, that helped him to actually succeed in his career as a religious teacher. And, and in other words, the, the author was supposed was suggesting that we can rather than seeing a sharp dichotomy between the individual and the community, they sort of trying to bring them together again and mm-hmm. suggest you know community was still an important part of the Buddha's life and career um, as a renunciant, mm-hmm. and we don't always see that. <laughs> we sort of see him as the the lone spiritual guy who goes out and does his thing and right. sort of forget that, no, 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 he actually probably still had all the support and lots of connections. And, you know, of course, later on, his 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 family comes to him and becomes part of his religious community. And what does that mean? And so sort of trying to bring family back into the um, center of this, uh, this narrative about the Buddha's life.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Shakyamuni is the... Virtuoso solo practitioner, <laughs> right, is the, the, the common image. Yeah, right? yeah, and there's yeah. definitely an aspect of Buddhism that says that I think where Shakyamuni is the role model, mm-hmm. right? He's the model for the path um, is to leave home, uh, do these different practices, yeah. right? Attain awakening and then teach others, right? And that, uh, that's held up as the, the model. But then, yeah, how much, to what extent do we follow the model? Yeah. Um, who wrote the model, right? <laughs> For um, what purpose? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the biographies of, of um, the Buddha are really fascinating study in themselves that we don't actually hear a lot about, I think, in kind of regular um, scholas- scholarly stuff. There's a lot, I think, but mm-hmm. not, maybe not even that much, but the development of the Buddha's biography. And we take the common story um, as somehow just being the way it is, yeah, but it's yeah, not yeah. at all. There's like... The, very great development of the um, different um, elements of the story and yeah
1: there's different versions of it and there's you know layers and layers of you know i'm sure you know historical truths but also you know embedded in there are clearly uh symbolic and and mythological elements to the story you know how do those fit in you know uh you know it's 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 telling that the biographers say that his son is rahula which means fetter mm-hmm. um you know is that what does that mean is that literally true was that like a biographical um embellishment mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I, mean, I think these are important questions and, and i think you're right there is a, a scholarly discourse about what all of this how all of this came together but we don't hear that much in um sort of popular discourse we just sort of take it as this is the story of the buddha right, right you know right. and and go with it yeah. um, and it seems weird to me because uh, he is the solo guy he's you know he's he's leaving it he, he said deadbeat dad he leaves his, his wife and child and you know that's our inspiration here in contemporary America where we generally hate the deadbeat dad you know like <laughs> how do we reconcile this vision of the Buddha with uh, more contemporary life uh, more contemporary uh, realities in 21st century America how do we innovate
0: yeah that that blog post is I think very innovative um really really was a really interesting read um and and to remember too to to um anytime we're taking something for granted and assuming something I think that's the Buddhist in me the alarm bells (laughs) ideally go off most of the time they don't because I just take it for granted and assume that this is the way it is. But I think the, 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 the critical side of Buddhism is kind of wants to say, well, now let's think about this again. right? The way, we, the way we're looking at it that seems natural is can we just really just accept it as natural or can we rethink it uh, and, and look at it from a different perspective and find something new in it? Um, and you know, one thing that's interesting is too is that even the idea of renouncing the home life and leaving one's family is that's also kind of mythologized, mm-hmm. right? To this thing where you just throw them away, but that's maybe not really the way it is either. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, we can find that in story of Mount or Mokuren. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, Mogalana, in the Obon story, right where he's concerned with his mother's fate, right, right, right. right we right. see it in Genshin. Oh, Seven Masters, um, <laughs> Genshin's whole thing. There's a thing with his mother. Um,
1: so there's this deep
0: concern for yeah, the family, yeah. Uh, uh,
1: even though I, you know this the idealized mythological aspect of the story of leaving the family, there's actually a pretty deep concern with the family, and yeah. you know, even you know, again, the, the Buddhist family do, do come to him and. Uh, join the community and I think that you know this This blog post like you're saying it raises some questions not necessarily that this is you know a, a new way of looking at it or a different way of looking at it or a radical departure but just sort of think well maybe we can sort of see between the lines here and say mm-hmm. well you know the Buddha you know, chose this particular path but you know, it wasn't like he was leaving his his wife in dire straits as a single mom out in the out in the wilderness. Like you know, she, he he left a palace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there was a large family uh, community that surrounded her, and that should raise some questions about the different kinds of families that existed in the Buddha's time and how they would be different from our families today. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, you know how you know how far did he leave them, and that they were still able to be within his sort of communication network, and they were able to become part of his religious community. I mean, you know, just to think about you know, don't take it quite so literally, and think about what was actually might going be
0: going on behind behind the scenes, so to speak. Um, or but, even have an image of like, um, would he even have seen his son that much? Right. Right. Or right. Would, would it be like? After a hard day of kingship, Siddhartha <laughs> comes home, and Rahula, Daddy, Daddy, comes jumping into his arms. And, right, Good right, to see right. you again. You know, yeah, brought notions, you a toy from yeah, whatever. You know, it's yeah. like fatherhood would have been very different at right. that time. These too. These
1: notions of, of fatherhood and childhood that we have today are, are pretty are contempor- pretty recent developments in, in history mm. of, of, of family life, and so the, these are sort of important things to just sort of keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> After a hard day of kingship, <laughs> <laughs>
0: or princehood, right? <laughs> I was thinking too um i correct me if i'm wrong or i will have to go look it up later but uh gregory chopin uh is an interesting scholar not the easiest stuff to read although you just have to wade through the difficult stuff to get to the interesting stuff in his articles because he is very scholarly and there's a lot of technical language and text you know in different languages and he probably quotes things in french and doesn't translate (laughs) them for you that kind of thing but um But he's got some amazing ideas. He's the one who goes against the, um, or or questions the primacy of text in the Mm -hmm. study of Buddhism, right? And looks to architecture and um, archaeology and, not so much architecture, sorry, archaeology, inscriptions. And one of the inscriptions he brings up, I think, is with the Amitabha statue. So the oldest example we have or or evidence we have of an Amitabha image in India. I mean, it's just the feet, Mm-hmm. But there is an inscription on it. And it's like a nun do- donating the scripture, I mean, donating the statue with the hope that um, the merit, that she can transfer the merit to like her parents or something. Right. I think it's parents. I thi- And I'm, don't take my word for it. We're going to have to double check and everything. <laughs> but the idea of merit transference on the part of, of monks, of, mm-hmm. of monastics, uh, and then this concern with family.
1: This was a, this was a nun. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we think this, you know, virtuoso, renunciant kind of thing of like, you just put your family out of your mind. You don't Mm -hmm. care about them anymore. But that doesn't seem to have been the case, really, Uh, that it wasn't this absolute cutting the cords and no um, connection at all. That actually they were, again, um, concerned with um, family and um, great care uh, about their family, Um, even if they're not living the life with them together. They have left the home. Right. They're not going home for home cooked meal every day and um spending the night at home, you know, um on the weekend yeah, or yeah, something, yeah. right? That there is a, a separation, but it's not absolute. Yeah.
1: And I don't know, I always think of monastics like you know, it's a job. It's a vocation. I mean it's mm. not uh I don't know. I, I sometimes worry that we get we create this idealized image of, of monks and nuns as being like these sort of superhuman enlightened beings out there that are doing some amazing work. But like you were saying, like sometimes being a monk is administrative and Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a sort of can be a a mundane thing, you know, that you just choose to do and it's not anyway,
0: that's. And I think we can see the, I mean, the reality is, we're talking about human beings, yeah, 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 and we're talking about groups of human beings. right are going to have even more problems, right, in institutions, <laughs> and just looking, like, in Sri Lankan Buddhism and the way it just keeps swinging back and forth between, like, primacy of forest practice, and yeah, you know, and yeah, then yeah. swings back to well, this group, and you know, that there's always development and tension and, and conflict, um, and that's partly what drives um, the tradition, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, another really interesting thing that actually is connected to biographies of the Buddha, though I can't it exactly but Walters and Stupas there's this article that Bruce Williams had us read and it was such a great article and um, I forgot about it for a long time and I found it again and read it again and well great article and I've lost it again Um, (laughs) but talking something really interesting of this idea that first an idea of accepting reincarnation right, and then the idea though that we reincarnate in groups, uh-huh. that we do have con- connections so that um, it's not like when I die, I could be reincarnated absolutely anywhere, um, with just out of the blue, totally on random. the other side of the country or whatever, or the other side of the world or something. Or the cosmos. Yeah, it's on another planet or something. But that I'll be kind of near my family and friends, that we're kind of together. Right, we we have these connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really interesting idea, and, and it was I think he's talking about circumambulating stupas and uh, the you know the the pictures and narratives that are on there, but also that people you could see it as kind of um, a symbol of this journey of con- of reincarnating again and again and again, but that we're doing it together. Mm-hmm. You know that we do have these karmic connections uh, that keep us close, even if um, maybe not in the ideal senses, um, but uh, really, kind of interesting idea of, of recognizing connections, mm-hmm. right? Recognizing uh, this—not just, um, just family. I think I think it's more than than family connections, just karmic connections. So it could be teachers too, right? It could be. Um, I think it could work on on, on right, a whole bunch right, of right, different right. levels. Yeah. Or your teacher comes back as your mother. Yeah, or you come back as your, <laughs> someone's pet or something. Right, I mean,
1: right. A, if we want to go down that rabbit hole of yeah. Theories of reincarnation and what it all means. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and this brings up uh, Shinran for me. And um, well, reincarnation is an interesting issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, I still hear people say, you know, the Buddha rejected reincarnation, right? That, that he, he didn't go along with that, that that's some other idea that snuck in there. I don't think so. To me, it's just so built into so many of the systems just whether you look at Theravada um, ideas of um, the different levels of attainment and like the stream enterer or the once returner, it's right there. You're going to be reborn one more time. You've reached, you've reached such a high level of attainment. You're only going to be reborn once more. It's like built in or the Arhat. <laughs> That's the whole point of Arhatship. You don't have to be reborn anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, the idea of the Pure Land, that, that you know, traditional idea is that, no, we, we have to be reborn again and again and again. Uh, and if if you do it, if you encounter the Dharma and uh, do it right, <laughs> that maybe you can be born in the Pure Land instead of having to be reborn in samsara. Right. And then ultimately that leads to Buddhahood. Shinran reinterprets that, but um, but that is kind of the traditional idea. Um, so Shinran has a—it's it's it's great because it's all encapsulated in one single chapter from the <laughs> Tani Show. Um, it's actually not Shinran writing. It's Yui Embo remembering what he, what he heard Shinran say. Um, but it's chapter five from the Tani Show, or A Record and Lament of Divergences. Uh, and, well, the first part, as for me, Shinran, I've never said the Nembutsu even once for the repose of my departed father and mother. So that's interesting in itself because he's, he seems to be acknowledging that there is an idea of a, a, a current practice at the time of, for loved ones that you've lost, you want to recite Nembutsu a lot to help them, yeah right? So he rejects that. and it's the,
1: It goes back to the merit transfer, the nun with the yeah. Amitabha statue in India. I mean, right. you know.
0: And the idea we can affect other right. people's post-mortem state, right? Um, But then he doesn't follow it in that direction. He goes in a totally different direction. For all sentient beings, without exception, have been our parents, our brothers and sisters, in the course of countless lives in many states of existence. So that, to me, is fascinating. (laughs) I mean, that's really interesting, where, you know, he's moving away from family in a way. Right? So it's not just about my family. All beings are my family or have been my family. Right? A just kind of cosmic mahayana vision. It seems like we're um recognizing that these bonds of family are, are are just a small thing in the big picture. Right? And mm-hmm. I don't think we even have to take the um reincarnation aspect of it. Like we can look at it in more more kind of cosmic like all beings are my my brothers and sisters and parents now. Yeah. Right? I think yeah, we could yeah. we could say. But but certainly you know, uh, this seems to be going beyond the bounds of family and kind of universal Mahayana vision of wanting to save all beings, not just certain ones, right? So I, I like this um, passage because, you know, it asks us to look beyond our family bonds, right, and and clan bonds, mm-hmm. right, racial bonds, ethnic <laughs> bonds maybe, right? Um, I, I think it's a great message um, of Shinran's uh, that goes uh maybe can help us um, cut a little bit of our um, exclusivity.
1: Narrow-mindedness.
0: Narrow-mindedness, us against them kind of, right? That all beings have been my family. Right. Right.
1: It's a kind of, that's a huge statement.
0: Yeah, I love it. This is one of my favorite Shinran passages. And then he goes on to say, on attaining Buddhahood after this present life, we can save every one of them. So again, that universal um, liberation for all beings kind of, of vision. Um, and then he goes, he says something about um, self-power and other power. Um, but And so then he says, if simply abandoning self-power, we quickly attain enlightenment in the pure land, we will be able to save by means of transcendent powers. First, those with whom we have close karmic relations, whatever karmic suffering they may have sunk to in the six realms throughout the four modes of birth. So part of it is the Jodo Shinshu thing of when we die, we attain Buddhahood and then come back. The returning aspect. We go to the Pure Land, but then we return from the Pure Land to Samsara to save beings. But he doesn't say, and then we go to save all beings. Everybody. All beings are my brothers and sisters, right? He says, first, those with whom we have close karmic relations. So I... and the great thing is that it happens in the same section, <laughs> the same chapter, right? He goes from this universal vision, moving beyond our clan and family bounds, mm-hmm. and then he brings it back down to, but the people that I have karmic relations with are who I'm going to save first. Yeah. Right? Acknowledging, I think, family, acknowledging community, um, acknowledging relationships.
1: Right? Yeah, that's, that's profound.
0: Yeah. I I, I, was, I talked about it the other day and I I got the first part and I was like, I know the second part is in, in here somewhere and I was looking in chapter four and looking all over and I was kind of embarrassing because I was at the podium like during <laughs> service and I couldn't find what I was looking for. I was kind of trying to show off, I think, or lazy or both. <laughs> but then I realized, hey, it's in the same chapter. Why didn't I just read a little further? Um, but this chapter five is great because it goes from that universal bodhisattva Universal liberation, Mahayana vision to um, acknowledgement of relationships mm-hmm. of
1: that we have now, right. right see I think this is this is, this is a, a ripe area for a way to rethink Shin practice in the contemporary mm-hmm. context, you know, like you were saying, we don't necessarily have to buy into a literal interpretation of reincarnation, right we can say you know all beings that currently exist are in some way my relations um, which the idea that that everybody, that all sentient beings are somehow related to me, I think is is part of my attraction to Jodo Shinshu is, again, this idea that everything is everything has the potential to be enlightened, I think is a uh, pretty profound kind of thought. Mm-hmm. But then to take that, like you're saying, to the specific of my close karmic relations or connections, mm-hmm. it seems to me like, well, then we can... Uh, to me, I always think that that what what we can do with the people that are close to us in our lives is we can see our relationships with them as practice for our relationships with others. Mm. That, you know, I can mm. do my best to have good relationships with the people that I already have in my life and then try to, when I go out into the world and meet strangers, you know, think, okay, well, I've I've been able to be kind and compassionate and mindful with so-and-so who I know and like and trust and whatever. Now I can sort of use that as a model for how I'm going to relate to other people and uh, extend those those feelings beyond the individual too.
0: To everybody mm-hmm.
1: to the whole cosmos mm-hmm. it's my brother and sister mother and father mm-hmm. whoa
0: <laughs> and not just people the other thing i forgot to not mention just is, people. it's not just people it's, it's beings right so any living being um could be animal could be yeah. um, ghostly i don't know um,
1: <laughs> those those poor demigods up in yeah
0: the <laughs> those cookie fighting gods um another um really interesting thing that happened was I I talked about this a couple times at church and um, the second time um, someone who's been coming to temple for a while now um, he came and asked me after he said Sensei those people with close karmic relations could that be someone like an enemy too? Could that be someone and I was like wow totally Yeah, you know that um, look at Devadatta and Shakyamuni are Uh kind of uh the paradigm example right? There's um, people um, that it's not just happy, we're a happy family, right? (laughs) But um, I think that, that, yeah, that's people that, maybe people that we're in conflict with now may also be people we have close karmic relations. Mm -hmm. In a past life, we may have been brother and sister. That bums me out. (laughs) Aw. Well, it's the flip side of what you were
1: saying. It's totally the flip side. It's totally true. I am not an enlightened being, and that's why it bums me out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping I get away from that guy. <laughs> but Those, was, those people. <laughs> and I was thinking,
0: too, we're recording these fairly close to the election. We're post-2012 election. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah. And um, isn't it weird how the, some of the, the people we can have the most conflict with could be the people totally different than us, uh-huh. other races, other nationalities, um, other mindsets, whatever. But often the people we have the absolute most conflict with are people in our own family, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, that sometimes you see in families this horrible conflict,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. right? Um, and it, but the flip side too, kind of like what you were saying, um, that uh, I think at the same time, uh, we can, some of the, the the most deepest, most powerful positive relationships, not always positive, but, you know, relationships we can have, with our family Mm -hmm. and we may have deep conflict there but the love is bigger than that yeah but then we can also have sometimes the greatest friend is someone totally different than us uh we can get really get along with someone from a completely different culture um and that's what we need more of i think right now (laughs) um but with maybe with an acceptance of conflict yeah
1: Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. maybe that's another thing we can get from this Uh, whether it's on the world stage of politics or the national stage of politics or the stage of interaction between different Buddhist schools or just the person difficult to get along with at work, um, that I think chapter five is, is um, appropriate, You know, recognizing uh, that uh, we're all in this together, uh, that we are all brothers and sisters uh, and uh, with close relations, uh, but that those close karmic bonds doesn't mean all like flowers and yeah. puppy dogs um <laughs> but can also be conflict can mean there's something deep we here we got to work out
1: right right yeah so you got to work it out okay i'll try to work it
0: out before the next podcast <laughs>
1: No, before your next incarnation oh okay <laughs> so they come back as flowers puppy dogs oh yeah, dogs. yeah i want
0: to come back as a puppy dog <laughs> i want to come back as a kitty cat